The title of our message today is The Last Revival, and we find it in the most unexpected place, a place that we, as believers, who know a lot about the tribulation period, might never look for the last revival to take place during that time. But not only do I think it's the last revival, I think it's the greatest revival of all times. God will be moving on the hearts of men and women, and they will be desiring to make their lives right with Him. Now, let's take a look at revival, or let's talk revival for a few moments. It's a large-scale movement of God on men's hearts. And in order for there to be a revival... There has to be revival in an individual. It's a series of individuals that have revival. They get things right with God. They get serious about following him. They want to be sincere. They want things right. The Holy Spirit has to do a work inside of us that we say things that we've been tolerating, things that aren't right, things that we've been letting go in our lives. We want to make sure we aren't doing them. It's also individuals who don't know Christ that suddenly the conviction of the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and now they want to give their life to Christ. Men have tried to promote it, force it, claim that there's revival when there is none, but there have been a lot of great revivals in the past. In the early 1800s, there was the Charles Finney revivals. In 1857, there's an interesting revival because our, our, our country was as divided as it gets. And I got to think it was even more divided than it is today, and you might not even think that's possible, but I want you to think back to 1857 and what was going on. So there was, the, there was a man by the name of Dred Scott who went all the way to the Supreme Court to fight for his right for a federal trial. When it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court declared that a man from the North, remember at 57, there's the North and the South, slavery is alive and well in America, in the South there, and he's from the North, and the Supreme Court makes a decision that if you are an African-American, their terms, if you are an African-American, you cannot be a U.S. citizen, nor can any of your children. That decision, the Dred Scott decision, divided our nation, it divided our churches, it divided families. People came down on both sides of the issue, and our country was as divisive as it has ever been. Of course, that's 57. Within a handful of years, we'll be into a full-blown civil war that has slavery right at the heart of what's going on. Well, that was in March of 1957. And in September of 1957, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lanford felt like God was telling him to get businessmen together and pray. This is known as the Jeremiah Lanford Revival or the Businessman's Revival. Business, business prayer, businessman prayer revival. And um, his first meeting, what called it for noon, nobody showed up. About 12.30, he had a handful of people that showed up. But the next prayer meeting had more. And the next prayer meeting had more. And God began to do something in the hearts of these men where these men wanted to get things right with God. It wasn't just gathering together for prayer, but they themselves fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they wanted to make things right with Him and serve Him and follow Him. And that happened to one person, another person, another person. And it spread throughout the entire, this is in New York, it spread throughout the entire Northeast region of the United States that by the time that revival was done, there was over a million people that had given their lives to Christ. 
And it had all started with a businessman hearing a call from God to begin a prayer meeting of businessmen. Other revivals that have hit in such powerful and strong ways uh, were the latest revival that we have had in the United States is the Jesus Movement, which happened in the late 60s and the early 70s. There's been smaller pockets of revival throughout the United States since then, but that's the last major revival. It happened from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast. Calvary Chapel, although it was not all of the revival, it played a significant part in that revival. When Pastor Chuck Smith began to invite hippies to his church, which doesn't seem that radical today. We're like, we got the idea, we'll invite anybody to church, doesn't matter to us. But hippies started showing up. And, and the, the, the suit and tie wearing churchgoers, because if you remember, back in the 60s, that's how you went to church. You, you got dressed up to go to church. You put on your suit and tie. And all of a sudden, they come to church, and there's all these hippies there. And they're like, well, what's going on? And God began to move. And these hippies who were disillusioned with the sex culture, the drug culture, began to give their lives to Jesus. They began to get things right. And it began to move through the United States. And people began, desires fell into the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And many, many young people got saved. I was 14 years old in 1974 at the tail end of the Jesus movement when I gave my life to Christ. I was right in the middle of that as I began to grow and to know him more and the, the music movement that came out of all of that. And it was very powerful. I would love to see it again. At the same time that was happening in Costa Mesa, on the East Coast, part of the revival was happening among Christian kids at a Christian college called Asbury College in that day. And they began a chapel, which didn't end, and then continued on and continued on. And people began to come from all around that area and began to seek God. It was part of the Jesus Movement revival. You can picture the unsaved hippies in Southern California and the more Christian kids in 1970 in Asbury seeking God and God doing something powerful. Now, I bring up Asbury on purpose, and some of you guys may know that there's a revival taking place there right now. It's seven days old, so last Wednesday night, uh, somebody got up and began doing kind of testimonies, sharing how they'd come to Christ. And testimonies, by the way, are very powerful and are often a part of revival. You hear that people start telling their testimonies. And it's interesting because these that are gonna be revived out of the tribulation period overcome the devil by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the lamb, by getting saved and by the word of their testimony. But in this particular instance, um, a kid got up to share and then felt convicted and fell under the conviction of the spirit, which in, in order for a revival to happen, somebody has to be revived. And he said, I'm in sin. And, and he went around front and knelt down in front of the stage and, and began to pray and seek God for repentance. And other kids began to join him. And that's been going on ever since. It hasn't stopped. It's been going on continual. Now, it's had some drop-offs. I mean, it's not like the place is packed 24 hours a day. It heats up at night, and there's a few kids that are around during the day. And it may have picked up a little bit more steam than that. But I would love for this to be a genuine revival. It may be hard for us to see a genuine revival like the Jeremiah Lanford revival because we live in a time where so, there's social media and people are gonna be trying to capitalize on this. And I really hope, and you can pray for them at Asbury. It is Asbury University now. It's a non-denominational uh, Christian college. And you can pray for them 
that they don't start getting anybody well-known up on stage. That's really what needs to happen. Well, the moment they start getting, you know, so-called Christian celebrities involved, then the whole thing's done. But if they can keep it a student-driven thing where students are, are giving their testimony, are repenting, are drawing nearer to God, are spending their days worshiping rather than, than out whatever it is that they were doing, then this is going to be something that can be very powerful and can really sweep through the nation. That kids want to repent, want to be in chapel, want to be worshiping God is a plus, right? It's not a negative at all. Now, is this a revival that from God? We'll only tell in a matter of time. I certainly hope it is. I hope it's something that catches. I hope that each one of us would stop and evaluate. Is there anything in me that needs to be revived? Holy Spirit, convict me that I would make things right with you, that we would have revival that would break out from us. Before you can ever have a revival, you have to have, someone told me, the arrival of the Spirit in your own life before you can have the arrival of God around us. And may God take this instance of looking at the latest revival and may God stir the last revival and may God stir us up that we would bring revival into our lives. Despite what happens on a larger level, that we would find genuine revival, whatever that means to you. If you need to return to your first love, whatever it might be, if you are in sin and you need to repent from it and turn from it, oftentimes revivals come with confession as well. There'll be a confession of, of sin and a revival will come with it. Years ago, I read um, Keith Green's biography, his, uh, his biography and it told about him going to Oral Roberts University and he was there with the kids there and he allowed them to begin to share and they began to confess all kinds of sin. These are students at Oral Roberts University. Some uh, confessed homosexuality. They confessed radical sexual sin. They confessed all kinds of things, drug use and, and, and drunkenness. They started confessing them all. Well, the, the leadership of the college, I think because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of motivation. I don't know what their motivation was, but they came in and they shut it down. And the only reason I can think they shut it down is they didn't want the reputation of the school to be tainted. And I think that's such a problem. Because if people in an organization begin to repent from such severe things, revival is on its way. God is doing something that's powerful because people don't stand up generally on their own accord and repent of these kind of things. And Keith Green had said that he believed that the administration stopped a revival that was a genuine revival that very well could have taken place. And we should not be afraid. It's when we forget about our reputation and we say, you know what? I want things right with God. Now we're in, in a place of honesty. We're, we're in a place where we have sincerity. We're in a place where we've taken hypocrisy out of it. And we're just saying, I want to be right with the Lord. And God begins to move. And God's doing it today. And I, got, I believe God's going to continue to do it. And during the tribulation period, for the people who are left behind, all of a sudden they have to begin to deal with I have Christian friends who are missing. I, the Bible says this is going to happen. It's happening. I have to deal with it now. There's a lot of people today that are in a form of denial about the last day's events coming to pass. I'm certainly, and, and hear me clearly, I'm not saying Jesus is coming back in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years. Okay? You guys know that. I think that's a huge mistake when you start doing that. Jesus said, you don't know when he's going to return, so be ready always. 
But we see Israel as a nation again, and the Bible foretold it. We see Israel taking control of Jerusalem again. It happened in 1967, and the Bible foretold it. And you can go, that's coincidence, that's coincidence, that's coincidence, all the way until there is a resurrection with a smaller group of people who are alive, who are caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air and to forever be with Him. And people can say, you can say all you want, you're not going to be caught up in the, uh, to meet the Lord in the air, but you're going to have to deal with Scripture if you're going to say that. There's going to be something that's going to happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and this corruptible will put on incorruptible, this mortal will put on immortality. The Bible says it, and it's during a time of a resurrection that happens. And people are going to find themselves in the midst of the tribulation period. And they're going to come to terms with it. And they're going to come to terms by the millions. By the millions, they're going to go. It's going to be the greatest revival we have ever seen. And it's going to be the last revival that this world will ever know. Let's pick it up in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7. Remember, we're in a pause. We're in the tribulation period, but we're pausing to look at a couple of good things that happen out of it. God's supernatural protection of the nation of Israel in the first part of this chapter, and now this revival in the second part. Verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. How big is this revival? It is so big, there's a great multitude that no one can number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. That's from the entire world that this is taking place. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed with white robes. With palm branches in their hands. The only time, other time in the Bible we see palm branches in people's hands is on Palm Sunday. When they are declaring him as king. And so now, these men and women who are standing before the throne, dressed in white, in a number that cannot be numbered, have palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that's the truth. This group of people declare salvation belongs to the Lord who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. If you want to be saved, you have to turn to the living God. You have to turn to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who gave his life for you upon the cross, that you can find salvation, that you can find eternity forever with him. And then in verse 11, and the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne of God and they worshiped. Now when they see this innumerable crowd of people in their white robes, their palm branches, declaring salvation belongs to God, the angels are so moved by what they see, they fall down and they begin to worship. The four living creatures fell down with their faces before the throne of God and they worshiped him saying, Amen. Amen. Salvation belongs to, to our God and to the Lamb. Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. That's the worship of the angels. And in case you missed any of that, let me go over it again. All the angels, the four living creatures, fall down, uh, the elders fall down, and they say, Amen. Blessings and glory and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might. Beat our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders who answered me said to me, 
Who are these arrayed in white robes? Well, we were interested in that question as well. Who are these people? And where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Is he saying, I don't know, you know? Or is he acting like, you know? You know? Like, you know, you know, you know who they are. Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So there is a, a number of people who are innumerable that are giving praise to God and declaring salvation. And they have come up out of the great tribulation. Can you imagine those who find themselves left behind when it suddenly dawns on them that these biblical things that are coming to pass are actually happening and that they have been left behind and now they are going to have to sacrifice their lives. The vast majority of them are martyrs. I'm not saying all of them have been martyrs. Some of them may have been killed by things that happened during the tribulation period, but they find themselves going through it and before they do that, they turn to Christ. The Holy Spirit, we believe, is removed in the church. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit won't be active during the time of the tribulation period. Now, this great multitude that cannot be numbered comes out of the tribulation period, which tells us that God's doing more than just bringing wrath and judgment on the earth. We talk about the tribulation period. We talk about God's indignation. We talk about his wrath. We talk about his judgment. We talk about God being fed up and God saying, that's it. I'm dealing with this rebellion of mankind. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, it says that God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that everyone would be saved. Now, God gives people free choice. They can make their own decision. And if they don't want to go to heaven, they won't go. But God desires everyone to be saved. So this idea of determinism is not true. That God determines who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. It's not true. Because if God is sovereign and God, if your definition of sovereignty, this isn't my definition, but if your definition of sovereignty is that God does whatever he wants, well, God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. My definition of sovereignty is different. A sovereign is a king or a queen who can make a decision and get what they want. But they may want to do things that are not in their own best interest, but in the best interest of other people. And so God in his sovereignty could choose to give man a choice, a genuine, real, meaningful choice to choose good and evil, to choose forgiveness or to rebel from it. A very real choice. A sovereign God could do it. You say, my God is so sovereign, he determines who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. My God is so sovereign, he can give man free will. My God is so sovereign that it doesn't threaten him to give me free will, to let me make a choice. And you say, well, you're so wicked, you're going to make a choice to be lost. That's why we have grace from God. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit to convict us and to draw us, to convict us of sin, of righteousness and judgment. God hasn't left us alone in our sin. Yes, if God had left us alone, none of us would be saved because none of us can be saved. But God's given us grace. He went to the cross. He died. He's made it known. He's given us his word. He's put his spirit in the hearts of people. All of that is God's grace being given to us for us to be able to respond 
to what God has given us to surrender our lives to him. And that's exactly what these people do in the middle of the tribulation period. In 2 Peter 3.9, we have a very similar verse. It says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, God's not willing that any should perish, but some will perish. Because God has chosen free will, because God's will is to give men free will, even though he will that none would perish. That would be his desire. Now, God is not only using the tribulation period to judge mankind, but to bring the biggest revival that this world has ever seen. God does this through the persecution of the saints. If you are one that finds yourself left behind, to use a very worn out term, but if you are one who finds yourself left behind, then you will be facing a great difficulty in your life. There will be great persecution. Now we see this group of people earlier in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, do you remember? Under the throne. And they were given crowns and they were told to hold on in white robes and told to hold on for a while until God brings vengeance on those who had, had martyred them. So that's the martyred ones who are here. So we know that they are martyred. But the Antichrist is granted power to overcome the saints. This is why when Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept my word to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of testing that comes upon the whole earth. And those who don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture will say, well, that just means God's going to supernaturally keep us through it. But that can't be. Listen to what it says in Revelation 13, 6 and 7. Then he opened his mouth. This is the, this is the Antichrist. This is Revelation 13, verses 6 and 7. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Antichrist is given authority to be able to overcome the saints. That's why Revelation 3.10 cannot be a promise that you're going to make it through the tribulation period, but that you will be taken out from the tribulation period. And remember, that's a promise to the faithful church. Because you have kept my word to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Daniel 7, talking about the Antichrist as well, tells us something very similar. Daniel 7, 21 and 22. I was watching, and the same horn... Now, a horn, a horn in prophecy is a symbol of power. A horn on an animal is its power, it's its strength. So he's watching and there's this horn and was making war against the saints. As I watched, the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So the Antichrist is given authority over the saints for a while, and that's what these saints have gone through. No wonder, now that they are in heaven, and whatever this scene is, this may be a scene that's fast-forwarding to the end, and you've got all of the saints that have come out of the tribulation period. Ones that may have survived and ones that didn't, but they're all in heaven now, and they've come out of the great tribulation. And no wonder, when they say salvation belongs to the Lord on the throne and to the Lamb, 
No wonder all the angels fall down and begin to worship God. Because God has brought salvation even in the midst of it. And when we talk about persecution that comes from the Antichrist, I think it's got to be an amped up persecution. But also in history, when persecution has hit the church, there have been many people who dig in their heels, who become purified by the persecution, and who follow Christ. The church spreads under persecution. People flee the persecution, and they take the message of the gospel with them everywhere that they go. And that probably happens during the tribulation period. Now, how do the tribulation saints hear the gospel? Number one, if it's in our lifetime, they are friends and families of us. And they might have think that you were out there as far as you could possibly be. You believe this, this fairly new idea that you're going to disappear? You're going to be taken up into heaven? But just like when people used to mock Israel becoming a nation again, or Jerusalem coming under Israeli control, when this happens, they're going to realize you were living the truth. And they're going to respond. They're going to begin to read their Bibles. They're going to begin to seek God. Also, there will be two witnesses in Jerusalem we will read about in Revelation 11. And the whole world will be watching what these two witnesses do. And they will know the hand of God is moving. And this will cause many to be saved. There's 144 Jewish, for a lack of a better term, I'm going to call them Jewish evangelists, who are sealed by God, who are no doubt preaching the gospel everywhere they go. And the Bible even tells us that there is an angel that preaches the gospel. This is Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on earth, to every tri nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Sound familiar? The great group of people with their white robes and their palm branches were from every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And now there's an angel going and telling everyone. And this is not TBN satellite, by the way. And I just bring that up. Only because I heard them say, we have a satellite and this is a fulfillment of Revelation 14.6. No, somebody's got delusions of grandeur. No, it is not. I remember seeing one pastor, I've named him before, but I won't now, that had a map behind him on his television show. And he had pins all over the world where he was. And he said, as soon as this map is full and our ministry is in every nation, the gospel will be preached to every nation and the rapture will happen. He put himself as the cause of the rapture happening. Delusions of grandeur. It is the body of Christ plus two witnesses, 144 sealed Jewish evangelists, and an angel that proclaims the message of the gospel. So everyone will hear. No wonder it comes out of every tongue, tribe, nation that is all around the world. Now, the martyrs overcome by not fearing death. What do they have to have to be able to overcome here? It says in verse, in Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Now this is the Antichrist, the devil. They overcome him by the blood of the lamb. This is not a passage to tell you to plead the blood. And if you've never been in a Pentecostal or charismatic background, then you don't know what that means. But I have been before. And I've had a lot of it happen. So pleading the blood is when you think there was a, there in, in the, in the uh, Azusa Street Revival, there was a particular pastor who would plead the blood all the time. This is back in 1905, 1907. And he would plead the blood 
and there were stories of healings, of miracles, of financial miracles that all happened when he pleaded the blood. So it became a tradition for the Pentecostal and charismatic churches to plead the blood over people. It sounds something like, I plead the blood over your finances. I plead the blood in your life. I bind the enemy by pleading the blood. Or it sounds something like, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. And everybody together would start saying, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead, I plead the blood. Pleading the blood is a tradition that Pentecostals and Charismatics have carried on that has no foundations in Scripture. If I want to handle things financially, shouldn't I turn to the Scriptures and figure out what the Bible says for me to do with my finances? rather than trying to plead the blood over my finances. If I feel like the enemy has control in my life, if I've given a place to the enemy, because the Bible says don't give a place to him, if I haven't resisted him and he hasn't fled from me, then shouldn't I go back to the Bible and learn what it means to resist the devil and to, and to flee from these things so that I won't have him in my life instead of having somebody plead the blood? We look at Catholicism and understand things like praying to saints and praying to Mary and, 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 and exalting Mary are in their tradition, and we can see the problem with that. And those, and, and I came out of the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. So I, we could see the problem with that. But then you get something like being slain in the spirit or pleading the blood, which is nothing more than Pentecostal traditions that are not found in scripture, but they claim because of special revelation, they are given something besides scripture. And they can't see how much that's like the same things in Roman Catholicism. In fact, I find a lot of similarities between the two. First of all, I find that there are genuine Christians in both groups. Secondly, I find that both of them are very emotional. If you come out of the Catholic background, then you know when you walk into a Catholic church and there's candles and there's incense that, that, and it brings something up inside you that's emotional, it's an emotional thing. And it's hard for you when you come here and you walk in and we're all talking and you're like, what's going on? You're supposed to be quiet. You're supposed to be, you know, reverent. It's hard for you. Same thing's true with someone in the Pentecostal tradition. There's a lot of emotion. It's very emotional. Where we would rather have what is the solid word of God and let our emotions move as God moves them. So when it says they overcame him by the power of the blood, what does it mean? This is the verse that's used to justify pleading the blood. And the Passover that they applied the blood to people. So that what they're saying is they're applying the blood of Christ to people. But how do you apply the blood of Christ to your life? by receiving Jesus as your savior. The blood of Christ is, is, is applied to you at that point. So they overcome him by the blood of the lamb, meaning they're saved. It, what can the devil do to me now besides take my life? I'm, I'm, I'm saved, I have eternity. I've already overcome him by the power of the blood. The worst he can do is take my life, but he can't take my life eternally because I overcame him by the power of the blood of the lamb. And then it says, and by the word of their testimony. And there's something powerful about testimony. Remember, we're talking about people that come out of the great revival. And now we learn that they overcame him by the power of the blood and the word of their testimony. Testimonies are often connected to revivals. People will stand up and talk about when they gave their lives to Christ and how they just gave their lives to Jesus. And there's something about those testimonies that stirs the heart of, the, of, the, of the, those who do not believe, of those who have never made a decision that perhaps it can happen to me. That as I gave my life to Christ when I was 14 years old, my father had died only a few months before. I came out of a, an abuse, my father was abusive. My father died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He was 6'1", 220. When he died, 
he weighed 98 pounds and was in a wheelchair. Now, he was heavy-handed in his discipline. And that might be being polite. It was not uncommon after, a, a, after getting the belt to have bruises on my back and on my arm because of where my dad would grab me, where my dad would beat me. My sister and me would compare our bruises on the back of our thighs and our upper, on, our, on our backs after we had gotten it by our, by our dad. My dad had said to me, now he had Lou Gehrig's. He knew he was going to die, but I was probably 12 years old. He died when I was 14. So I was probably 12 years old when he said this to me. He sat me down. He shook his fist at me. He said, I'm going to make you a man. I had no idea what he was talking about. I'm 12. But now I know he meant I'm going to make you a man before I die. So he became heavy-handed. When my mom walked in the, the house when my father died, she was at the hospital. She walked in. She didn't tell us he died, but I could tell. And the thought I had, think of this for a son, for his dad. The thought I had, good. Good. That's the thought I had. Now, a little bit later on, I really wanted to have my father. By the time I got to my late teens. But as a 14-year-old, my thought was, he's not around anymore, and that's a good thing. And if you are any way abusive towards your children, if you are heavy-handed, look, discipline's a good thing. But don't have it be when, you're, when you die, your child says, good. I'm glad they're out of here. It was a few months later that I found myself in church, the loss of my father, my family kind of going, my mom trying to figure out what she's going to do. We have, there's three of us. I'm 14, my sister's 16. She's going a little crazy. I have a seven-year-old little sister. And somebody asked me at church, are you going to heaven? And I say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. And they say, how come? Because I believe in God. He said, does the devil believe in God? I said, yeah. He said, is the devil going to heaven? And I said, no. He said, then it takes more than just believing he exists, doesn't it? You've got to give your life to him. You've got to receive him. And I prayed a prayer like I lead you guys in often. And Christ came into my life and he transformed me. I used to think that was the most boring testimony of all testimonies. I grew up in church. I was baptized a Methodist. I grew up in the Methodist church. And then I gave my life to Jesus. But I found when I tell that story that I thought was not a powerful testimony at all, that God uses it to touch people's lives. And people come to Christ when testimonies are told. Tell your testimony often. Let people know. Ask other believers, what's your testimony? What did Christ do? How did you get saved? And if you don't have a testimony, then get a testimony. Because we overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And it says, and they did not love their own lives until death. They were willing to die rather than to take the mark of the beast. And that's when many of them died. They starved to death. They went out in the wilderness. They couldn't pay their rent. They were cast off by society because all of their money, their funds were cut off. All the money in the world will do you no good if you can't spend it. That's where programmable money comes in. And we're going to talk about that when we get to the mark of the beast. Because if they change your dollars into digital dollars, now they can make them unspendable. That's what programmable money is. People say, I don't understand the power of Bitcoin. I don't understand the power of digital money. It's nothing. No, it's, it's so much more than the dollar in your pocket. The dollar in your pocket is, is nothing. It's going to be reduced to nothing. But something that can be programmed, money they can, they can give stimulus checks and put a date to by the time it's got to be spent. They can give stimulus checks 
and then cut it off if they don't like what you do. If you don't get vaccinated, they're going to cut off the stimulus check. You get vaccinated, they'll give it to you. They can get ultimate control by, by programmable money. It is a key part of the last days. That's my soapbox, which I'm going to get off of now. All right? Uh, if you think that programmable money isn't anything, think about how valuable the programs are on your computer. What is your computer without programs? You could do nothing with your computer. It would be a good doorstop without programs. But you put programs on the computer and now you have something of value. You have something of value when you have programmable money and it will be used. It will be used in the way that we're talking about. The, the UK is coming up with programmable money. Europeans are coming out with programmable money. There's a USD coin on its way, already being used by some people today. It's, it's around the corner. So they did, not, they did not love their lives unto death when they couldn't spend their money, they couldn't buy anything. You can't buy or sell without the mark. Uh, Matthew, 24, uh, Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. He's saying, don't fear the one who can just destroy your body. But give your allegiance to God. Because that can give you eternity. Now we go on in our text. It says, that these who, uh, back up in verse 14, so they said to me, who are these ones? They're the ones that come out of the great tribulation. And then it goes on to say, and washes their robe and made them white with the blood of the lamb. We, you don't wash, make clothes white with blood. This is the blood of Jesus washing us from our sins. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. The Bible says times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. It's another reason for personal revival. Get the things out of your life that, that push the presence of God away. That the presence of God can be in your life because times of refreshing come from the Lord. And they will dwell, he will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore. They were hungry because they couldn't buy food with their money. They will uh, nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them. They were homeless because they couldn't pay their rent nor any heat for the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There is a triumph for the martyrs who chose life in Christ and death who would not flee death by not choosing those things. Now, three things in closing. Number one, there is a great honor in dying for Christ. I started to write out all the passages that spoke about the crown you get and the honor of the martyr, and I, I didn't have time. I'm out of time. So I stopped writing them down. But there is honor in dying for Christ. Do I want to? No. I want to die in my sleep. But if I have to die for him, I'll do it with honor. I'll, I'll, I'll choose it over turning my back on him or turning away from him because there's an honor in dying for him. And many, many Christians have gone down that road of honor before us. But there's also honor in living for him. Sometimes people come up with a false dichotomy. There's honor in dying for Christ, but I'm just going to live my life. No, live for him. Die to yourself now and live for him because there's honor there as well. There's just as much honor as living for him as there is for dying for him.
You are now living wholeheartedly for your God. Number two, love God and his call and not your life. Love God and his call and not your life. Be willing to lay it down. Be willing to give it up. and Love him with everything. Number three, maybe God will bring revival one more time before the end. Maybe the last revival won't be the one that comes up next for us. Pray for the students at Asbury. Pray that God would, would give them wisdom. Pray for their leaders that they wouldn't, that they would fight the temptation to bring in the celebrities because they're already there. They're already there. They've already gone that they might be able to put their marks on it and make it their thing. So pray that they would fight that off and let it be something from the students and that God might cause this to spread and become a real revival where God begins to move as, as these kids that make their lives right with God, it becomes infectious to the next person, to the next person, and to the next person. And we see a genuine revival like the Jesus movement in our time where hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions come to Christ. I find a parallel to the uh, Jeremiah Landfair revival. The 1857 revival. We live in a time where our, our nation is divided. Our nation hates each other. It's interesting too, our, our nation was divided in the 60s, right before the Jesus Movement revival, about Vietnam War, all the political stuff that was going on then. And here we have a divided nation as well, and maybe God will interject himself one more time, and we'll see things that are far more important than our differences, and it'll bring us to the right place, because the love of God brings us to the truth. That's the right place for us to be. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we can take a look at this last revival in the book of Revelation. And Lord, we do pray that you would revive our heart, arrive in our heart, that we, if there's anything that we need to take care of, help us to take care of it. That we are not walking around semi-following you, walking in the flesh and in the spirit, but being those who walk in the Spirit, delight in the Lord, abide in the vine, because your Spirit has done a work inside of us. And we know this has to be something you do in each one of us. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.